0: Indeed, Lord God, thank you. Thank you for this word on love, and thank you for the opportunity to look into what it means to be your body, the body of Christ today. We thank you, Lord, for um, the beauty of the differences between us and the beauty of the unity that we have in you. And we thank you, Lord, for your love, which binds us all together, even as we're bound Um, inextricably to you through your own death and sacrifice through your coming and your birth and so we look forward again to the celebration of christmas this week and we ask lord that you would prepare our hearts for that celebration even through our study this morning and we ask this for your glory's sake and in your name lord jesus Amen. amen we've seen quick summary these last few chapters we've seen that in this First letter of Paul to the Corinthians, we've seen um, a couple of different things that Paul is pointing towards. He's beginning to answer questions that they've clearly had for him in their own letter. They have written a letter to him, at least one that we know of, and he is, in a sense, responding, um, and has been responding. So when he says, now concerning, fill in the blank, he's responding to their letters. He has addressed the issues of asceticism versus licentiousness. It's not anything goes, licentiousness, nor is it nothing goes, asceticism. Um, uh, the body is not bad. It is good, said the Lord, after creating all of matter, all of creation. And so Paul is trying to help them see that they can be both spiritual and enfleshed beings. Um, and so he's helping them neither escape from the flesh totally, but rather engage um, in real relationships, engage in things that are good for the body um, and and not totally deny the body especially when it's within the right channels, food eaten in the right circumstances, sex um, within marriage, those things he's underlining and saying are important and correcting their false view of those things he's also corrected um, a false view that relates to this earlier view but this false view about excessive freedom His Curbed their excessive freedom in the name of love. He's curbed their excessive freedom when it came to meat, sacrifice to idols. Remember that? He has curbed, um, especially the excessive freedom of the ladies when it came to wearing veils, not wearing veils in public worship. Um, it was um, very likely leading the men astray. It was either um, cutting down on the distinctiveness between the sexes or it was, um, or, and or it was. Um, tempting the men in some ways, you know, revealing their beauty and allowing the beauty of the women to be on display while they're also worshiping the Lord and leading worship, praying and prophesying in worship. What a distraction from focusing on the Lord God. So he says, you're free to do this, but really don't. <laughs> um, and then when it came last week, we saw with communion... He has said, no, you're free, but you're really not free in this case. And this is terrible. He said, "Um, you cannot do what you're doing because what you're doing is not actually the Lord's Supper. When you come together, you don't get to portion out certain parts of this love feast, this meal of communion to people based on their status. No, everybody gets some. Otherwise, it's not actually the Lord's Supper. And and he's correcting them pretty severely about that. So today we're going to see... In chapter 12, that there are a lot of these similar divisions. Some people saying they're better than other people, setting themselves over other people. Remember this idea of being puffed up and proud. These divisions that have already been caused come from some saying, well, we're better than you because the gifts we have are better than yours, so you need to listen to us. And they were just wrong and um, not understanding the gospel. And so Paul's going to correct them very specifically about spiritual gifts Um, okay so I'm going to read I'm going to read chapter 12 um, verses 1 through 3 and quickly talk about those um, before we get into chapter 12 any further any questions before I begin okay beginning at chapter 12 verse 1 now concerning spiritual gifts brothers I do not want you to be uninformed You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed, and no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except in the Holy Spirit. Paul here, by saying now concerning, we see that he's addressing another issue that they had brought up in their letter to him. He's also prefacing what he'll begin to say about these spiritual gifts and how to understand them in relation to um, one another, My, you know, so-and-so's gifts versus so-and-so's gifts. But he's laying the groundwork by giving some basic rules about what are the gifts, and are the gifts good? First of all, they valued this idea of being spiritual. Um, this word for spiritual occurs 24 times in Paul's letters, but 15 of those times are here in this letter. They value these gifts given by the Holy Spirit, and they have a sense of importance about these gifts, for better or for worse. How interesting that he says, no, it's good that you have these gifts. These are good things, essentially. Before, when you were pagans, when you were Gentiles who worshipped many idols who are not gods, um, you were worshipping gods who couldn't speak. (laughs) mute, dumb idols. He says, basically, now you worship the living God, and the living God is going to speak through you and minister to each other through you. And that's a good thing, is what he's saying. Um, he's, so he's saying these gifts are good. He's giving some basic groundwork in verse 3, how to distinguish. Is someone speaking through the Spirit of God or is someone not speaking through the Spirit of God? The basic um, distinguishing factor is that you cannot curse Jesus and be filled with the Holy Spirit. You cannot deny Jesus and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, All of what the Holy Spirit offers to the church and gives to the church is meant essentially to highlight and spotlight and exalt Jesus Christ. I like to think of it in theater terms, of course. Because I like to think of the Holy Spirit as not being center stage. Um, And in some churches, you'll see the Holy Spirit really takes center stage, and I get weary about that. Because when the Holy Spirit takes center stage, um, is it really the Holy Spirit? Because the Holy Spirit always wants to exalt Jesus Christ. Just like the person in the theater troupe that is backstage in the dark, holding the spotlight and moving the spotlight around, Jesus is the star in the light. Um, because it's through him that we have salvation. And so the Holy Spirit is always shedding light on who Jesus is and what he's done for us. The Holy Spirit is always pointing to that work of Jesus so that Jesus would be exalted and worshipped in our midst as the body of Christ. So the Holy Spirit doesn't turn that spotlight back on himself. No, he's turning it to Jesus. And this basic confession, Jesus is Lord, what we know about this for sure is that this was maybe the first kind of creed that Christians had, even before we had the Nicene Creed, that's in the fourth century, even before we had the Apostles' Creed, which was the second century, there was this basic confession of faith, because you couldn't say, Jesus is Lord, unless he really was your Lord, unless you really believed that Jesus was the Messiah, who is also the Son of God, who died and rose on our behalf. So it was just this nice little shorthand, a way of identifying who's really a Christian and who is not. And how beautiful that this profession of faith is something that Paul says can only come about by the power of the Holy Spirit. How do we believe in the first place? It's only because the Spirit of God tenderizing our hearts, preparing our hearts for faith, um, that we are able to put our trust in Jesus Christ. All the more reason to pray For those in our lives who don't know Jesus, and to ask the Holy Spirit to go and prepare their hearts so that when they hear the word of the gospel, the seed would fall on fertile ground and not on um, on fallow ground. Okay. Any thoughts about that or questions about that? Okay, I'm going to keep going. Verse 4. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. To one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom. To another, the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he will. How interesting is it to think of all this variety of gifts Given to the church, given to the church as a whole, and given to individual members of the church. In the In, yeah. Okay. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, I love I love your translation. The Lord chooses and gives gifts according to His choice, which, again. Paul is using that kind of language, and that's a certain interpretation of the Greek language that you have, K. that's a little different than the ESV. Yeah. But, um, but what Paul's saying essentially is by by not getting to choose, he's not saying some have certain merits and others have other merits, and the Lord is giving these merit-based awards. No, he's saying there are, there are no merits that any of you have. <laughs> it's the Lord who basically um, gives them out. It's not based on anything you've done or on who you are the Lord simply gives them as he will it's a mystery and it's not based so therefore you cannot say well I'm better than you or you're better than me simply because you have one gift or another in comparison with the other person who is it that says that comparison is the root of all sorts of bad things it's not the root of all evil but it's something really bad right? isn't it Comparison is terrible, and we're getting into a whole lot of comparison here. Paul begins in verse 4 by referencing the Trinity. Do you hear this? Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There we have the Holy Spirit. And there are varieties of service in verse 5, but the same Lord. He's talking about Jesus Christ and serving the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in verse 6, and there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God, God the Father, who empowers them all in everyone. The diversity and unity of the Trinity itself should be reflected in the diversity and unity of the Church. Isn't it amazing that we serve one God who is made manifest to us in three persons? He is three and one in this mystery of the Trinity. How is it that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are three distinct persons? Um, and yet they're so bound in unity that we could say they're one. There's only one other. um, There are two things that we can think of in our earthly life that point towards this spiritual reality that mimic and um, attempt to um, bear forth this image of what the Trinity is like. The first thing is marriage between a man and a woman. So different. Men are from Mars. Women are from Venus. So distinct. <laughs> so separate. We're so different, and yet in the beauty of marriage, when it's working well, um, the two come together, and as we say, in our one flesh. Now, Scripture says the two come together and become one flesh. There's no mistake that Genesis 1 has that um, image of the two, the male and female, being made in God's image. Um, It requires two of us together unified to be able to show forth what God is like. He's a community of persons bound together by the unity, the unifying factor. And the unifying factor in both of those things, in in both marriage and the Trinity, is love. Love is what binds and unifies both husband and wife and Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The other thing on earth that we point to and say this is meant to mirror and mimic and show forth what God is like is the church. And this is how, for those who are unmarried, we still get to experience, and I still say we, because I still forget that I'm married after (laughs) almost a year, but being single was no loss for me. I certainly longed longed to get married, but I also knew that the Lord would fulfill those desires of my heart for deep intimacy and communion and fellowship with other people. And he had, and I knew he would continue to, through the body of Christ, through the church, being in these deep and lasting relationships with people who are very different from me. If you think about it, we all come together, and it's like we come from different backgrounds. Um, Hopefully, our church is maybe a little more homogenous than some. But ultimately, the church of God, universally, is very diverse. Um, when uh, the church is brought into the New Jerusalem, there will be every culture, every nation represented, and we will be bound together as one body, one person, essentially seen um, represented by the Bride of Christ. So that unity between um, the Bride of Christ and the Bridegroom, Jesus Christ himself, is a unity of love and that vertical unity, each one of us, in relationship with God the Father through Jesus Christ, then has this love to be shared horizontally with each other. Does that make sense? So there are these distinctions, and these distinctions he sees as being different gifts, and the purpose of the gifts is that they're meant to be used to the benefit of the church. Um, We see this whole list of gifts, and I'll go through them in a little bit, but um, were one gift to be exalted over the other, or... One gift were one gift to be used simply for the purpose of one individual or at the will of the one individual, then that contradicts the purpose of the gifts themselves because the gifts are meant for the benefit of the whole body. If you wanted to do a little looking and searching in other places, you would see other lists of the gifts of the Spirit are found in Romans chapter 12, verses 6 through 8. And I'm just going to read it very quickly for you. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Um, Isn't that a fun list of the gifts that Paul gives us In Romans, there's another list of the gifts in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 12. And I'll read that very quickly for you. No need to turn to it if you want to listen. But that's chapter 4, verses 11 through 12 in Ephesians. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. So there we see, too, that these gifts are meant to be used specifically for the building up of the whole body of Christ. Yeah? Would you just tell me that first verse from? So the first one that I read was from Romans chapter 12, verses 6 through 8, and I'm sorry I didn't put this on your handout. And the second one is from Ephesians, chapter 4, verses 11 through 12. And you see that um, the only gift listed in all of these passages is prophecy. How, interested. Uh, how interesting. Um, there are some that seem similar, the gift of wisdom versus the gift of knowledge. Paul is clearly making a distinction and 2,000 years later, we're still commentators, still are not sure. they'll all take different positions on what those two mean. What's the difference between wisdom, wisdom and knowledge? Um, is spiritual knowledge directly spoken from God into a specific situation? Perhaps. Wisdom, maybe for guidance and direction. Those are some thoughts about what those differences are, but both have to do with some kind of knowing, spiritual knowing. Of sorts. Um, The gift of faith is a gift that every Christian has. Again, it's that gift given by the Holy Spirit to be able to say, Jesus is Lord, which is something we all say every Sunday when we say our creeds. Um, but the gift of faith that is referenced here is meant to be a faith that is above and beyond saving faith for a special task. He lists gifts of healing. And we could ask the question, does God heal today? Well, if we believe in the resurrection. If we believe that Jesus rose from the dead, then we believe in real miracles. We believe they're possible today. And there's a great book on miracles. If you're interested in reading it, it's simply called Miracles, and it's by Eric Metaxas. His last name is M-E-T-A-X-A-S. But it's an easy read. It's a fun read. And again, he's arguing that based on the belief in the resurrection as Christians, we have to, we believe in a God who enters into creation to transform it and to change it. Therefore, um, we believe that miracles are possible. That it's possible for Him to break in. But there is some danger, especially when people talk about the miracle of healing, which is also listed, listed here as a gift. There's a danger of it becoming a work in the church if if healing is based only on, on a certain measure of faith that we have, that some have, but others don't, then it's a source of condemnation. If you've ever heard that in certain circles, well, you just didn't have enough faith to be healed. That is not helpful. That is not a good approach to healing. In fact, when I pray for healing for people, um, I pray for it specifically in light of the Lord's will. You know, I pray, Lord, would you heal this person supernaturally or naturally, work through the doctors and the medicine, would you heal them and let your will be done? And the question is, is his will for the healing to happen on this side of Jordan or on the other side of Jordan? Because we know that when we die and we are raised um, at the last day, when we see Jesus face to face, we'll have a new body. We won't just be these disembodied souls, but our bodies will be completely remade with no more... um, with no more sickness or illness or death or dying and that's healing right there so at the last day our will be healed perfectly and so we can pray for that healing today though that's what i do is pray for the healing today because it is part of our inheritance in christ at the last day the question is just is it his will for us to be healed now is it now or later <laughs> um and so praying for it to really be now <laughs> lord now heal now and not just later um, prophecy. This prophetic speech um, involves words that God spontaneously brings to mind or reveals to a speaker. And this kind of prophecy must be tested. Some um, Christian groups, some Pentecostal groups, will see prophetic speech as being equal in authority to the Old Testament prophets or to a word of Scripture. That is not. There's there's no strength in that from Scripture. There's no support for that view from Scripture. Um, it, it was widely used this prophetic speech was widely used throughout the New Testament church to build up and to encourage the gathered body um, if you've ever anybody ever been to Advent House to pray or do you pray at Advent House sometimes there are, pe- there are people upstairs who are praying while you're praying downstairs and the people upstairs will listen and pray and, um, and they'll write down any kind of scripture that they get or any kind of song. Sometimes they'll get phrases from hymns or praise songs. Or sometimes they'll get images and they'll write down an image that they get. And then at the end of the time, they come downstairs and share what they've gotten. What I've found is you have to test it, right? You always have to test what's been given. And if it's the voice of the word of love, then then yes. Um, If it's not, then it's, no, it's okay to try, pray about it and say, Lord, is this really from you or is this not? Because every word of prophecy comes through a vessel of flesh. <laughs> and So sometimes the flesh might be getting involved more than the person is aware. And so that's between you and the Lord, and you don't even have to tell the person. You can just, thank you, receive it, and then go wonder and ask the Lord, is this right? Is this really for me? Show me either way. Um, and the Lord will do that. Um, tongues. Tongues is another tricky one. Anybody ever been to Advent House and heard someone speaking in tongues? Or does anybody have the gift of tongues? What a beautiful so thing to <laughs> Um Tongues are, it's a speech speaking in a language that the speaker themselves doesn't know. Um, it's a prayer language in the you know, it's different what happens in worship today, when you see or hear someone praying or speaking in tongues, is different than what happened in Acts, when they all had these specific languages that were easily understandable to all those who were gathered to hear. Um, And one of the things um, that Paul keeps saying is that tongues are used for prayer and for praise. They build up the speaker. There's something special about that prayer language that involves a deep unity between um the lord god and the person um but it needs to be interpreted for it to be edifying to everyone else around them and so what we think was that um that the corinthians and we're going to see this in chapters 13 and 14 too they were exalting tongues as like the best thing ever and everybody had to have it and if you didn't have it then you were lesser And Paul is going to really put the smack down on that. He's saying, no, that's not true. Um, And he's pointing out how tongues really don't edify the whole body of Christ. And therefore, they're not one of the higher gifts that you should desire and exalt the way they had been desiring and exalting them. So um, he points out, too, that tongues will not be a normative experience for all Christians. Some charismatic groups will say, if you don't have the gift of tongues, then you're not baptized in the Holy Spirit. And that's that's not true what we see from scripture is that the gifts are given this is one gift given to some but it's not a normative experience from for all Christians okay yeah. yes uh, I guess this was maybe five or six years ago the Newton's yeah mm-hmm. <coughs> and they, um, they were asking people there to um, you know give forth their prayers and Janice just started speaking in tongues, and then and Peter wrote it down. Peter had the gift of interpretation. Yeah, he interpreted. It was amazing. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, the people who speak in tongues is like Hebrew. He he could interpret. her. What if someone else was speaking? Would did they say the same thing? I mean, I I'm trying to ask. Do they both speak in the same tongue? Not usually. Yeah, but she had a tongue. I mean, she had certain. Yes. Yeah. Some people's prayer language will sound well. It makes some people simple. will have a prayer language like I've heard prayer languages that sound Indian or yeah. prayer languages that sound Latino or you know. But but what I would say about it again is, you know, tread with tread with caution. There are some some again some churches if you don't speak in tongues then you're not a believer baptized in the Holy Spirit. And so there's this. Terrible uh, pressure to speak in tongues, and you'll hear people say should have about a Honda, should about a Honda." <laughs> that's what they say. They can't make it. You just sort of open your mouth and see what comes out, and, and that's really not helpful. No, not, not not that, not good. But um, but there is a sense if you've been around someone who is praying in tongues, and, and both of my parents have the gift of tongues. So being praying with them. It's powerful, and I sense the presence of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes I'll sort of get a flutter, but I don't have words that come out, distinguishable syllables. But I do just get this overwhelming sense of being in the presence of God, and that's a beautiful thing. And the way I experience that is sort of like a rush from the top of my head to the bottom of my feet. I just know, thank you, Lord, you're present. (laughs) And he's always present wherever two or three are gathered, but present in power um, in a different way. Um, the other thing I'd say about that, let's see, what was the other thing? I was say my, well going on web. But they um, they if you've ever seen the Lord of the Rings movies, anybody seen those? Mm-hmm. My, we love them as a whole family. Not just I am obsessed with them, but the whole family loves them. And my parents, whenever they're speaking in Elven, do you know, if you read Tolkien's books, there are long passages where they're speaking in elven or dwarvish and it goes on forever and you can just kind of skim ahead because you can't understand it, but in the movies, when they're speaking in Elvish, my parents are like, oh, they're speaking <laughs> And it's this beautiful sound, the way they articulate it, it's beautiful, and it's beautiful in a similar way. And so if you can experience it in other people and, and not feel lesser than, which is what Paul is saying, great, it, it can be a beautiful thing. But if it's this, comparing and one-upping each other, then forget about it. That's not from the Lord. Uh-uh. And that's what he's going to keep saying. So let's look at verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many, Where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. Paul's approaching from the underdog approach here. He's saying, um, he's talking about the unity of the Holy Spirit. Um, One body, one spirit. All are baptized into the Holy Spirit. All have that cleansing and empowering work of the Holy Spirit in the new believer upon conversion and water baptism. And therefore, all have drunk of the same spirit. They all have been irrigated by that same Spirit of God. It's always interesting throughout Scripture. You'll see there's a lot of water imagery for the Holy Spirit. Well, um, Paul's going to use this image of the physical body as a way of helping these Christians understand the unity that they have, even though they have diverse gifts. He's talking about this complement. These team members, the body is like a team. And on a team, you need some differences Otherwise, you'll never be able to function together. Um, So there's this equality of the gifts, and all are needed for the building up of the body. Just about this complementing of um, the team of Scripture, or excuse me, the team of the body of Christ. Thinking about, again, a marriage or a family or a work team. Say you're all working together and trying to do something. If some people, I like to think of the Myers-Briggs personality type. You know if you ever have done those where you get the four letters, um, sometimes if you have a bunch of ENFPs in the room there'll be a lot of talking, will be a lot of fun, but nothing will get done. If you have a lot of ISTJs in a room you're gonna get everything done down to the last detail, but people might not be having fun and and it might be very you know closed and sort of um, insular and um, rational and all have a legal progression. But both of those gifts, those sort of two extremes are needed. Again, my parents' marriage, one of them's an ENFP and one of them is the exact opposite, an ISTJ. My grandparents' marriage, they are also exact opposites. And I like to think that they really need each other <laughs> because if they didn't have each other, they would either get everything done and have no fun or they would have all fun and get nothing done. So there's this need for this compliment, for these... Differences to work together. And Paul approaches it first in these verses from the view of the potential underdog, the person who would say, I'm lesser than this other person. Chrysostome, John Chrysostome, an early church father, points out that the foot contrasting itself with not the eye but with the hand is, um, shows that we're prone, aren't we, to envy those who might surpass us a little bit rather than those who are patently in a different class with a different function isn't that interesting how envy comes into play any other thoughts about this passage does it make sense to you that some would think well others are better than me because they have this ability and I want that ability I don't want to be what I am I want to be what they are but they might want. What you right exactly they might want what the grass is always greener on the other side Well, he's addressing this problem of the underdog. He's going to go on to address the problem of those who think that they have all that anybody needs. And that was really the biggest problem in the church at Corinth because those who thought they were so superior to everyone else were contributing to this lesser than factor of those with seemingly lesser gifts. Um, In this idea of comparison, if you forgive me if you've heard this before, but my acting teacher in college would do this thing with his hands like this He'd make these lesser than, greater than signs. And, he'd, uh, and he was just, he was so dramatic. He'd just be, are you doing this? He'd be like, what are you doing? Are you doing this? But it, because if you were up there on stage and you're you know, sort of feeling lesser than or greater than than the people around you, he'd be stop it. Yeah. <laughs> stop doing this. Because it, because it flip-flops back and forth. It's either, oh, everybody else is more amazing than I am. I'm lesser than. Or it's, oh, I'm doing really well here. Forget uh, I'm, uh, He said, don't ever get up in front of the class and do a scene and wear that t-shirt that says, I'm not stupid, with the arrow pointing to the person next to you. So it, it, he, and he would call us on it if he thought that we were doing this. Obviously, we weren't saying anything, but we'd be, um, you know, kind of this subtle, have this subtle, quiet superiority with the person next to us. My first scene in that scene class was with a boy who I would say now I didn't know what I didn't know what autism was then I'd say now he had Asperger's at least um, he never cut his nails and he was constantly picking his nose and eating it in public he had this like big hair that was, was not a romantic scene oh, thank you Lord but um, but he had some behavioral social issues he was extremely intelligent but he just couldn't interact socially in a way that made people feel comfortable around him. And my, my first scene was with him, and I just remember being like, oh. But it was as though our acting teacher was saying that directly to me. Don't get up in front of the whole class and wear that T-shirt that says, I'm a stupid. You know, oh, look at me. I'm so great. Aren't I wonderful? And this dunce next to me. Um, and so, so, again, that lesser than, greater than comparison is something we just fall into so easily. And I've loved that image. is really helpful for me to think about it, also because I love basic math, not higher math, but basic math. You know, it's an equal sign, not a lesser than, greater than sign that exists between us as members of the body of Christ. So, verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand... giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. I'm going to keep going. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it, and God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping administrating in various kinds of tongues are all apostles are all prophets are all teachers do all work miracles do all possess gifts of healing do all speak with tongues do all interpret but earnestly desire the higher gifts and I will show you a still more excellent way I do want to get to chapter 13 so if I'm hurrying forgive me We've seen that these team members complement each other. um, From those who think they're lesser than, he's saying, no, you're equal to. From those who think they're greater than, he's saying, no, you might be on display a little bit more. Um, But that doesn't mean anything. Um, We also give great honor to those parts that some consider shameful or some consider, and he's talking about the body still, he's talking essentially about reproductive organs or excretory organs, we cover them. We cover them in public as a way of honoring them, as a way of, um, of, of protecting them. And so those with the showy gifts who might have been devaluing the others or dominating them are wrong. Um, and uh, there's a great quote from William Barclay. Whenever we begin to think about our own importance in the Christian church, the possibility of real Christian work is gone. Isn't that beautiful? We think it's about us and about how awesome we are. Then, then um, we're done. We're done for. It. We're not actually doing the Lord's work anymore. This is especially sobering and humbling for me, being an active ministry, looking at it and saying it's really not about me. Lord. And sometimes it feels like it is, but it really isn't. And trusting that, in, in trusting that to the Lord, and trusting. That the Lord will do his work through me. My, one of my prayers almost always, you'll see us preachers get, get up, sort of disappear before we get up into the pulpit on Sunday mornings. And that really came from Frank Limehouse kneeling. He would always kneel on the steps before he got into the pulpit. And my, my prayer whenever I do that is, is the prayer of John the Baptist He must increase and I must decrease. Lord, would you be the one exalted? Would you shine forth? through what's going, our lives will be on me, but Lord, would you put them on you instead? Um, I think about it too with, um, my father didn't do that kneeling before getting into the pulpit um, growing up, but I always knew that on Sunday mornings, um, by, by, by the time we got home from the church, I would notice all of the bathrooms in the house were sparkling. My father, every Sunday morning, before he got up into the pulpit, before he led worship, would clean the bathrooms in the house. Mm-hmm. That was his, That was a part of beginning the act of worship, was in that humble way, um, which is beautiful. So again, those with the showy gifts, if they think that it's about them, then all is not. Um, Okay, so he talks about these greater gifts, beginning in verse 27. um, But he's going to say, um, he's only seeing this sort of hierarchy of gifts to help them understand that tongues is not at the top of the list. They were putting tongues at the top of the list, but tongues do not build up. So this list is not exhaustive. It just sort of represents some of them. But he's saying the, the gifts that do build up the whole body are those gifts that he's ranking. Um, being, a, you know, the apostolic work, the prophetic work, the teaching work. Um, even all of these other things that come before tongues in his list. He's saying these build up the whole body of Christ. Tongues really build up, as he's going to say in chapter 14, the individual believer in the Lord together. Um, And so again, he's putting tongues last of all, even though that's the one that they value the highest. Um, So if you look at this list of gifts and you say, well, I don't know that I have these, or I don't know what I have. I don't know, you know, trust that you have some of them. You definitely have some of them. We each have some of them. And um, you know, there are ways to find out which ones you have. And if you're interested in that, you can talk to me later about that. But one of the ways my mother talks about it when she teaches is she says it's as though, and I'm sure she got it from somewhere, but I don't know where, how appropriate for this week. She says it's as though upon our conversion and our putting our trust in the Lord, upon our baptism, there are gifts that are given to us by God through the Holy Spirit. And those spiritual gifts are like presents, like gifts like under the Christmas tree, all wrapped up and beautiful and waiting, with our name on it, waiting for us to go and unwrap them. And so the question is, Lord, have I unwrapped all of the gifts that you've given me? Are there more gifts that you have for me that I haven't unwrapped yet? And what might those gifts be? So to earnestly desire those gifts would be to say, I want to receive all of what you have for me, Lord, and I want it to be for your glory, for the benefit of other people, and especially the benefit of the church. So will you show me what those might be? Will you give me the grace and the ability to open and unwrap those gifts and put them to your glory and your use? He goes on to say the best gift of all. Isn't that great? I will show you a still more excellent way at the end of chapter 12. And he's really leading into chapter 13. So I'm going to go far too quickly through chapter 13 because it is so beautiful. um, But it's pretty clear what it means, I think. Okay, so let's read chapter 13 beginning at verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. He's juxtaposing love with three of these gifts, at least, or four of these gifts he he talks about here. Um, He talks first about this gift of... um, This gift of uh, uh, love, or excuse me, he talks about this gift of tongues, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but don't have love, what he's saying is that um, anyone preoccupied with saying over doing with their own speech or this heavenly speech over actual love that's embodied and enfleshed, then they've become nothing more than a bunch of noise. Isn't that quite a judgment there? Um, if prophecy is loveless, then it's nothing. If faith, and again here he talks about the gift of extraordinary faith, given to some for extenuating circumstances, even that wonderful gift means nothing without love. Um, if one has knowledge and deeds of po- turning from knowledge and deeds of power in verse 3, Paul then turns to gifts of mercy and dedication. Um, As one commentator says, one may be generous to the point of beggary. In other words, impoverishing yourself in order to give away to others. You could be that generous and still lack love because you could be doing it for the wrong reasons. Right? Interesting. Out of duty. Out of duty or out of self-importance. Right? This burning... Um, when giving up one's body to be burned, if you have a little note it, they're not exactly sure what the Greek means there. It could also mean delivering um, one's body that I may boast delivering up one's body, in other words, to death. It seems to describe some sort of supreme self-sacrifice. Um, I like to think of it as a self-imposed martyrdom. We all know those self-imposed martyrs whether they've actually taken their <laughs> martyrdom to death or not. <laughs> There's always someone in our lives who is um, the martyr doing everything for everyone else but they're really not doing it for the right reasons are they? <laughs> and so there's, it's possible to be a self-imposed martyr but not out of love for other people um, out of manipulation out of a sense of self-importance um, where is love? what exactly is love? he's going to go on to say in verse 4 love is patient and kind love does not envy or boast it is not arrogant or rude it does not insist on its own way it is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. What does it look like when love is present? When love is present in a person, that real true kind of love, that agape love, which is the kind of love that we're talking about, um, what is what happens is that there is a kind of Patience. This is the word for this. Patience is patience with people rather than with circumstances. A patience that's long-suffering. The kindness um, involves this service of others that's really for their benefit and not for some kind of personal gain or not for manipulation. It has an absence of envy. That strong passion of jealousy. Love is not displeased at the at the success of others. Love does not have that boasting. Um, Everybody knows a windbag. Love is not manifested in being a windbag. One great quote from one of the commentators said, love is concerned to give itself, not to assert itself. This kind of love, this word for love, came about, um, it was used before Christians began to use it. But really, um, in the New Testament, Christians really took this word love agape and used it to describe um, not so much what it used to mean before before Christianity before Christianity in the Greek this word meant the love for the person you best know who's that person that's closest to you and it involved that knowing the person best but Christian love this Christian version of agape they tweaked it. it the Christian version of love is the love that we see at the cross I love that lovely hymn that we sing holy, during Holy Week um, about the cross. Love for the loveless that they might lovely be. This kind of agape love um, is a love that comes not from any attractiveness of the beloved, but it's a love that proceeds from the very nature of the one loving. The lover possesses this love. Love is not in the eye, or love is in the eye of the beholder, right? Um, just like beauty is in the eye of the beholder, this love is in the eye of the beholder. Um, this kind of um, love for the unworthy, we hear it of it in Romans chapter 5 verse 8, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Um, we see this love lavished at the cross. Um, and this kind of vertical love, this kind of vertical Christian love, God giving us this love, um, loving us with, Um, This undeserved love is meant to then transform the way we see each other. That vertical component of love as we're in relationship with God the Father through Jesus Christ then is meant to transform our interactions with each other. This horizontal love that Paul is talking about and advocating for is produced only when that vertical love is received and is allowed to transform us. So um, what he's saying is this love is eternal. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Again, this idea of partial knowledge, partial partial speech, uh, uh, all will be gone. When we see the Lord Jesus face to face, we'll have no need for these means of revelation for these means of making his will known to the church, because we'll know fully in his presence. We'll have unfettered communication with him. And so these things that the Corinthians were exalting, they're actually so temporal, so minor, so unimportant, compared to the all-importance of love, the kind of love that will last eternally, that will last into the future age when we have been raised and live together in the Lord um, eternally. And so he's underscoring these three faith, hope, and love abide, but the greatest of these is love. Just to close, I oh know I'm a little late, sorry. Just I to don't cl- have to go today. Okay, <laughs> good. I did not good. Well, any questions before I close? Just to close, how beautiful to have this reflection on love this time of year. And I cannot say enough how much, um, how great it is to memorize this passage, especially about what love is, those inner verses that I put at the top of our sheet. It's just helpful. Um, Usually I find it as a judging factor in my life because I realize, oh, I don't love this person or I'm not being loving right now. This is helping me to see it. Lord, would you give me more of your love so that then I can love this other person. Um, When we're being unloving, we really need to be loved out of our unlovingness and only God can do that Um, but this time of year I love, there's this one poem um, that we talk about um, or that we'll sing it'll be sung as an anthem I think this Sunday or in two Sundays and it points to this reality that um, love is not something we can earn or achieve the love of God is something that he gives to us so graciously at Christmas love comes down We don't have to ascend to the Father. We don't have to be good enough to earn his good pleasure, just like the way we often seem to have to do with earthly parents. No, our Heavenly Father loves us because love is in the eye of the beholder. And so this Christina Rossetti poem always speaks to me every Christmas, and I'm going to read it for you. Love came down at Christmas. Love, all lovely, love divine. Love was born at Christmas. Star and angels gave the sign. Worship we the Godhead, love incarnate, love divine. Worship we our Jesus, but wherewith for sacred sign. Love shall be our token. Love be yours and love be mine. Love to God and all men. Love for plea and gift and sign. The love shared horizontally is the only love that we have to give, that we're able to give because of the love that we receive vertically. So there's that vertical love and the arrow is pointing down towards us. And we respond. But it's really love given to us. We're loved when we're unlovely in Jesus Christ. And then by His grace, we're able to extend love to others. So let's pray. Lord, thank you once again for the gift of your own self, for the gift of um, your life lived, your life given over in death for us, um, your life, your new life as you were raised from the dead, and that promise of new life that we have in you. And so we thank you, Lord, again for your birth at Christmas so long ago, for your incarnation. And we ask, Lord, that, the, um, that your love would be showered upon us, especially this week. And then, Lord, that you would um, allow us, by your grace, to pour out that love, to have that love overflow in our lives to others um, as we reach out to them. We ask this for your glory, in your name. Amen.